Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another Market Insights podcast. My name is Naj Srinivas, Corporate Communications Group Manager here at the firm. And today I'm joined by two research analysts here at our firm, Luis Cassian and Brad Rotolo. Hi, thanks for, for having us. Yeah, good to be here. Both of you cover the energy sector from different perspectives here at our firm. Brad, from the top-down perspective, you're on our capital markets research team. And Luis, from the bottom-up perspective, the individual names that are in energy that you track all across the world. And so I thought it'd be really neat to sit down with both of you today and talk a little bit about energy, provide our listeners an update on, on the sector, because a lot of things have changed since we talked about energy last. So what are some of the major stories you're tracking right now? So from my perspective, uh, I think one of the more interesting things to have happened recently is that OPEC's actually been pretty effective at cutting production and taking supplies offline, but then also that it hasn't really mattered at all. Uh, The U.S. has continued to just get more and more efficient. U.S. production is surging back near uh, record highs that we had. Uh, last year, and uh, it seems to to me that the market is you know, very well supplied. And even though OPEC has, as I said, been pretty pretty efficient and effective at getting barrels to come offline, uh, oil has suffered year to date. It's down about thirteen percent. It's a little bit like a seesaw. OPEC cuts, U.S. production goes up. OPEC decides to ramp up production again, and and. U.S. producers get squeezed a little bit and cut back. Is this going to be the case for the foreseeable future? That's that's our thinking. I mean, in order for oil to have a sustained period of strength, what you really need are deep and lasting cuts to investment or some tremendous new demand source. Like think when China began uh, industrializing in the early part of the last decade, uh, buying you know. 50% of all marginal barrels of oil that were coming online. If you think about what China is doing right now, they're de-emphasizing the heavy industrial side of their economy, uh, focusing more on services and internal consumption and things of that nature. Uh, so from a demand perspective, we're you know, relatively uh, optimistic, maybe neutral uh, on oil consumption, but supply of oil is just very buoyant, specifically here in the U.S. I mean, like we said, OPEC can cut, the U.S. can keep increasing output. Uh, specifically, it's, it's going on in the shale uh, producing areas. So if you think about the Permian Basin in West Texas, parts of, uh, of New Mexico, the output per rig deployed has gone up by a factor of three just over the last few years. Um, so the U.S., you know, a lot of people were saying, well, if OPEC cuts and prices fall, that's going to take a lot of U.S. production offline because it's going to fall below the cost curve, meaning people had this notion that it was simply too expensive to produce a barrel of U.S. oil. Once the prices fall below that, U.S. production will slow. That's very much proven to be not the case at all. What can affect things on the supply side in a pretty big way that would cause oil to pop out of this range that we've seen it in for the last couple of years? Well, on the supply side, a lot of times people will focus on geopolitical uh, events. And historically, what would cause maybe a fleeting uh, jump in oil prices would be any sort of tension in the Middle East. There would always be fears of 
Uh, let's say if there was a blockage of the Straits of Hormuz where a tremendous amount of oil passes uh, via, via ships, maybe that would cause a spike in the market. But an interesting sort of change in the markets over the past year or so is that now geopolitical tensions actually seem to be causing oil prices to weaken. And the, the reason for that is cohesion needs to be maintained within OPEC for these cuts to have any legs whatsoever. So as we saw last week with Qatar and the cutting off of diplomatic ties with a number of neighbors, oil prices spiked modestly. Uh, They were up about 1% as soon as the news broke. Uh, But then they actually ended the day lower. And I think part of the reason for that is the market was saying, well, if there's disagreement or discord within OPEC, maybe they won't speak with one voice when it comes to taking those barrels offline. Maybe the production cut that they agreed to is now in jeopardy. So that's very different from in the past when any sort of Middle East turmoil would have would have almost certainly caused a spike in oil markets. Now it can actually uh, lead to some of that pressure coming off. Is part of that, though, also tied to the increasingly globalized nature now of oil production in that You've got the U.S. that's now able to export some types of crude oil. You have much, much more liquefied natural gas making around the world, too. Is is that playing into it a little bit now as well? Is that a big factor, or is that still pretty nascent and small? It's almost hard to say. I mean, the U.S. exports have been growing tremendously. I mean, it was was a trickle for a long time, uh, and then now we're getting to the point where we're becoming a a reasonably big exporter of crude oil. Uh, Still nothing in the way, of course, of of the the major petrostates. But I think there's some truth to the fact that there's a little more slack in the markets. If you think about, um, you know, even just a, a concept like spare capacity, so how much excess crude is out there that maybe isn't necessarily being being consumed on a daily basis. It was low for a really long time. Of course, it's gone up a little since OPEC took some offline. Uh, but now if you think about the notion that the U.S. can actually export and supply uh, markets around the world, it's showing the consumers, which is ultimately the refiners, that they can look other places for their oil. They might not necessarily be as reliant on just a few major exporters. Yeah, and Brazil also um, in the last couple of quarters has um, become an oil exporter. Uh, that hadn't happened in several years. So to your point, Naj, uh, I think that you know there are countries outside of OPEC uh, who's increasingly, uh, you know, production growth has contributed to you know the, the circumstances that we're currently seeing. Mm-hmm. Brad, one of the things that you mentioned a couple moments ago was that output per rig in the United States has grown threefold. That's, that's really interesting. I think it speaks to the technological progress we've made with, with producing oil in this country. So maybe just for our listeners, could you describe what hydraulic fracturing is, how it's different than conventional drilling that everyone kind of thinks about, and then what's improved that's allowed us to grow our production threefold, which is a pretty big production improvement in a fairly short amount of time, if I'm not mistaken. Right. So if you think about conventional drilling, uh, the way it has been done for many decades is, you know, you drill straight down, try to find an efficient reservoir of oil, and you pump that to the surface. So nowadays, especially in shale uh, oil and gas drilling, 
you do the same thing. You drill about generally a mile down on average, and then you start drilling horizontally. Over the last few years, those lateral lengths have gotten longer and longer, where it was about a, another mile uh, horizontally. Nowadays, you, you're talking three, four, even five miles of lateral length. So that's one of the main factors that's contributed to an increase in production per well, because now when you have a, a, a lateral length that's you know, three to five miles versus one, the fracking stages that you have per well have skyrocketed. Once you drill that lateral well, that's where the fracking process comes into place. The fracking process is simply the injection of a combination of water with sand into layers of shale rock formation to try to break them up and release the hydrocarbons into the, uh, the well bore. I'm glad you said hydrocarbons there because that, that really speaks to the main purpose of, of hydraulic fracturing, which is to release oil, but one of the byproducts is natural gas, and we get a lot of natural gas out of that too. Is that right? That's correct. So Associated in, natural gas, they would call it. Yeah. Right. In the major shale basins, like the, the in West Texas, for example, the Permian, um, some of the major producers are capturing a ratio of about 60% oil, 40% gas, which wow. has led to a, you know, an abundance of natural gas that has driven the prices down uh, for natural gas as well. Now, another question that I think a lot of people are probably wondering, and Brad, you mentioned this earlier, but as OPEC has started cutting production, U.S. producers have been able to react pretty quickly and boost production. That didn't used to be the case. It, it strikes me that drilling for oil is probably a pretty labor and capital and time-intensive activity. How have we been able to boost production so quickly to kind of meet the demand and keep prices for oil range-bound? Well, that's really a function of, of the new shale production. So if you think back decades ago, if you wanted X amount of oil, it was probably a Gulf of Mexico based project or deep water in Alaska. Now you've got the same amount of oil able to be extracted from onshore and it can be done relatively cheaply and, and pretty quickly. So the, the time to extract the same amount of oil has been cut in third because now it's onshore, so it's cheaper. But additionally, there's a tremendous amount of wells that were drilled but not yet completed or fracked. Uh, and what that means is effectively the, the holes were drilled, that's the expensive part, but they never actually did that final stage of pumping the, the sand and the water mixture in to really extract all the oil. So when oil prices stabilized, recall they hit $26 or so per barrel at the beginning of, of 2016. Now that they've stabilized and what we see is a, a pretty flat range of maybe 40s to 60s per barrel, companies now can be more confident in saying, well, all those wells that we drilled, now we can go out and, and complete them. So now we can finally do the fracking uh, stage, which is the one of the cheaper parts uh, of the whole process. To build on a point that Brad just made in terms of the, the time that it takes to drill a well now, um, again, one of the major contributors to how quickly U.S. production is rising is uh, you know, some, some of these uh, wells in the Permian Basin can be drilled in five to seven months, which is something 
unimaginable just five years ago. How, how long did it take five years ago to drill a well? At least twice that long. Wow. Yeah, and, and the costs have, have also halved. So, um, you know, but both of those are, are major reasons why we're domestically are approaching now production levels that maybe we're only a year away from from an all-time high. Yeah, and if you think about, you know, we're saying that you can turn these wells back on uh, more quickly and you're getting more out of these wells because you're able to drill further laterally, that means your total output is going to be significantly higher than, than folks would have anticipated. So if you think about what it actually takes to produce a barrel of oil in terms of total costs, that number continues to just plummet. There was a period when people would say, you know, it cost about $80 per barrel or so to produce a, a barrel of oil. Now that's absolutely plummeting. In fact, there's plenty of places in the Permian where CEOs will tell you they're profitable at $30 per barrel. So that probably keeps oil relatively range bound. As oil begins to creep up, maybe back into the 50s or even mid 50s, that just means there's more wells that move into that profitability range. So that probably, in our view, really keeps a lid on things. Will they shut off wells even if they start to fall into that slightly unprofitable range? Say there is a well that is only profitable at $45 a barrel. Do they start to shut those off immediately when oil starts to filter down or do they just keep those running at a loss for a little bit longer? Well, in some instances, you'll hear about requirements to keep producing. So if it's uh, drilling on leased land, I know that sometimes they are required to keep pumping even if maybe it falls into certain unprofitability ranges. Uh, other times, they simply want the cash flow. So they may be quote unquote zombie producers, but they are alive. They are, they are at least having cash come in to service debt and things of that nature, uh, but they're not necessarily profitable. None of this is to say that the the industry is in great shape, though. So we're we're painting a, a case for why the industry's output continues to be high. But that's very different from saying that these companies are healthy. There's a lot of companies out there that are, are frankly only still able to to still be in operation because capital markets have been kind to them. They're still able to to borrow money. Uh, a lot of them are still issuing stocks, so diluting current shareholders uh, just to stay alive and just to, to stay pumping. So while we're very bullish on the technology improvements and our ability to produce more oil in this country, we're probably bearish on on the sector. Is that is that a fair assessment? Right, because the the number one driver of the energy sector doesn't matter if you know you're you're in that 60-40 mix of oil versus gas, or even maybe a little more skewed towards gas. The number one driver of the sector overall is the direction of crude oil prices. That's where the, the big companies are uh, in terms of market capitalization and weighting. Uh, so that's going to be the, the dominant driver. And if you think about an environment where demand is okay, but you know, there, there's headwinds to demand growth just because of efficiencies, but supply is very buoyant and we're expecting range-bound oil prices, that means we're really not expecting too much out of energy stocks. So one of the things that there's been a lot of speculation on, and it's kind of just fun to think about if you're if you're a, a, an economics nerd like myself, I suppose, 
do you think we could ever be the world's top producer of oil? Well, it, it's certainly possible. I mean, if you think about who are the top producers now, you've got you've got Russia, of course. Uh, the Saudis were you know, often the, the top producer. Of course, they're, they're the ones cutting right now to maintain that. What, are, what is Russia producing right now? Right, it's ballpark. Uh, 10 or so million barrels per day. Uh, the Saudis were north of 10. They've cut uh, to, to keep this OPEC production uh, agreement in place. Uh, the U.S. for years was in the, the 4 million barrel per day range. Now we're at 9.3 million barrels per day, uh, estimated through, through May. So it's highly conceivable that if you know, the Saudis and, and OPEC decide to keep production a little tame, and we, as in the U.S., continue to get more efficient and output keeps growing, that, yeah, it's not at all inconceivable. Um, the Russians pretty much produce to the full extent possible at all times, uh, while they are a party to these cuts uh, as one of the few non-OPEC members to agree to it. Uh, generally speaking, they produce to the full extent possible. So Most they, of their economy is tied to it. They kind of have to. Exactly. So they may max out somewhere at around 11 million barrels per day, whereas the U.S., I mean, I don't want to get too speculative here, but if we keep increasing the efficiencies, it's not inconceivable that we stumble upon another sort of shale revolution. One other point I want to bring up is that drilling really has not benefited from automation. And I think as time goes on, that's going to continue to improve, allowing more producers to become profitable at even lower prices. One of the technologies that's currently being tested is directional drilling guidance systems. And this comes to play in the, the actual drilling process where currently it is very manually driven. Companies are now testing technology that directs the drill bit and it allows it to stay on the path envisioned by, ge by geologists um, at a much greater accuracy that, that any human can. So, so computers and robots are coming for oil jobs too is what you're saying. <laughs> you know, th there are some folks out there that believe that a fully automated self-driving rig will arrive sooner than a self-driving car. Wow, <laughs> that's, that's pretty amazing. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode. Brad, Luis, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. And to all of you out there, thanks for listening. For more, please visit marketminder.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. Past performance is no guarantee of future returns. The content of this podcast represents the opinions and viewpoints of Fisher Investments and should not be regarded as personal investment advice. No assurances are made we will continue to hold these views, which may change at any time based on new information, analysis, or reconsideration. Copyright Fisher Investments 2017.